Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We dealt with first love part one two weeks ago where we focused upon your delight and your love for the word of the Lord. And biblically we want to demonstrate tonight that Um, the biblical concept of first love is nothing more than a love for God's word. Whenever we think of the concept of first love, people often think of love as an emotional feeling of devotion towards someone. Now, love is not primarily an emotion. Love is a decision. Okay? Um, You're not in love with someone because you feel like it. Right? (laughs) If, If we were left to feelings, then people would be in and out of love on a consistent basis, right? But um, love is essentially a decision. It includes the emotions, but it's not rooted in the emotions, right? It's a decision that one has come to. Last week, we said that your love for God is only demonstrated by a love for His Word. You can never, ever say, I love God without loving His Word. And your love for the Word is evidenced by your obedience to that word. So he who says he loves God and does not obey his word, does not love God at all. You are self-deceived if you say you love God and you have, your attitude towards his word is poor. Right? This truth must be rehearsed, must be reiterated, must be said over and over again. Because there are many sons of God all over the world that think they love God. And you ask them how, and they will describe their love for God in terms of all the feelings they have for God. Um, The kinds of songs they sing in their worship of adoration. That has a place, and we all do that. But the litmus test is this. The acid test is your love for God is only measured by the extent of your obedience to His Word. Jesus said, if you love me, Do what? Keep my commandments. Your love for God is only evidenced by your obedience to His Word. So what we want to stress tonight is that the concept of divine love, or rather your love for God, has got to be understood in reference to Word. The the issue of love and Word cannot be divorced. Particularly, first love. Now we often use it if you're courting and you have a first love, your first serious relationship, as it were. Um, and people naturally describe first love romantically in terms of the first person they really loved at a deep level. Right? Now please, take that concept and press the delete button in your, mem- in your mind. I'm not, that has got nothing to do with what we are speaking about tonight. First love for us is your love for, your devotion toward, and your obedience of the word of the Lord. Okay? Nothing more, nothing less. So when a Christian goes away from his first love, he goes away um, from an attitude where once he loved the word of God, 
He would read it often and was very, very sort of um, serious about obeying the detail. There was meticulous observance to the word of the Lord. You know that when you go away from those things, publicly, you've gone away or you've left your first love. Okay? And as I've said in the notes, it would include your attitude towards the word, your honor and respect for those who bring the word to you. Remember we said first love is to be only understood relative to word. So, however that word comes to you. For example, if you dishonor and respect the ones that bring the word to you, you've lost your first love. Because your, your first love is measured by your devotion to the word and your obedience thereof. But if you despise, for example, the medium primarily through which that word comes to you, right? automatically you are, it's impacting your first love status. Right? Thirdly, your active positioning um, of yourself to hear the word. I'm going to talk about this next week. Right? Next week's study, I have it in my mind. But positioning oneself under the sound of the word in terms of your hearing of that word. Right? So whenever you are not under the sound of word to be heard, you've left your first love. Okay? I'll demonstrate that next week. Regular and consistent engagement and interaction with the word on, your, on a personal, private level. Right? So whenever you don't read and study your word on a consistent, ongoing basis, it's evidence to you that you've left your first love. And ultimately, like I've said, the acid test is obedience to what you have heard as proof of your love for God and His Word. Right? So first love will encapsulate all of these, all of these um, principles. Now, let's read the biblical concept of first love. We have many scriptures to read tonight. So please, I hope you have stamina. <laughs> I hope you have staying power for the Word. Amen? Hallelujah. I marvel in Africa how they have stamina for the Word. Right? Just, this is, first love will be evidenced by your stamina, um, your capacity to engage the word at a deeper level. I was reading how Paul, I was reading a lot of Paul this week, and how he would teach all night, and Eutychus fell from the ledge. Right? The guy died in the middle of one of Paul's teachings, because Paul taught all night. Right? And um, Paul said, no problem. We just go downstairs, we raise the man from the dead, and we carry on with the Bible study. Right? Raise you. Right? So don't die in the process of listening to the word of the Lord. Don't switch off, as it were. Because if you do, we'll raise you from your death. Right? And we'll carry on teaching. Amen? Revelation chapter 1 from verse 9 to 20. Interesting, interesting portion. It says, I, John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was in the Isle of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. He was imprisoned because of the word of the Lord. Now Patmos is an island just off um, the coast of Western Asia. I have a map somewhere in here on page just quickly look at the map on page 4. You will see the first map, the darkly colored map. The dot in the ocean there, the white dot in the ocean, that's the Isle of Patmos. Right? So you get Asia Minor, and in your map you've got the seven churches which John wrote to 
uh, in the book of Revelation, the seven cities there from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So just off the coast, the white dot off the coast, uh, because of the dark colored, um, the, 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 the darkness of the blue there of the sea, you can't see the word Patmos. But that was the isle. That was the island on which John was exiled, right? A kind of Robin Island, if you would. Very small place. So John was exiled there, incarcerated there. But, and he wasn't incarcerated in the spirit. His movements were limited in the natural, in prison. But in the spirit, this man transcended his local environment and was able to access things in the spirit. So he's writing, John is writing, he wrote the whole book of Revelation from that island. Right? Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is the picture of the Lord, eh? Right? His feet were like burnished bronze when it had made to glow in a furnace. And his voice, this is what I like. We're focusing on the word of the Lord here. So John is seeing this marvelous picture of a glorified Christ. And he says his voice, when, when this guy speaks, his voice was like the sound of many waters, right? His voice like the sound of many waters. Please bear that in mind. In his right hand, right? In his right hand, he had seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. What a glorious picture, eh? John sees Christ. Um, just look at me, just picture um, I don't know how he's standing, but obviously there's this emphasis on right hand, seven stars, a glistening face shining like the sun. The sound of words were like, think of many waters, like different streams coming together and falling down, cumulatively down um, a waterfall. Who's been to the Victoria Falls? They say the sound is deafening, Right? It's almost like, and there, there's multiple falls in the Victoria Falls, all making up the one massive fall. And depending where you go, you have almost different sounds of water. John has this impression that his face is glistening like the sun. Right? He's got this long robe on. Um, in his right hand, there's this focus of seven stars. And there's a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. This is the picture that John has of Christ. And then it says, verse 17, I, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am 
the first and the last. The one, the living one, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery, now he's being to give John some clues as to what the symbolism in what John has seen, what these things mean. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, explains to John what these are. The seven stars are, are the angels of the seven churches, right? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? Now, remember he said, I heard the voice behind me. I turned around to see the voice. I saw seven lampstands. Now, the voice is telling him the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars you see in the right hand are the leaders of those churches. Seven angels. Remember, angels, angelos, are the leaders of those houses. So this is the picture that he's painted to John. Okay, now, let's just go to some of the symbolism here. Everyone say many waters. The, the, the voice that John hears is the sound of many waters. It's not the sound of one specific water. It's the sound of many waters. And as you know, water consistently is an image of the word of the Lord. And we've taught this painstakingly in the first few sessions. So it's the sound of many words. The sound of many waters is the sound of many words of the Lord coming forth from his mouth like a two-edged a two-edged sword. And in your notes, the second line, this refers to the many multifaceted dimensions of God speaking or the many varied expressions of His voice or different emphases of His, of his word. The completeness of His voice is to be found in the collective expression of many waters. No one specific grouping, uh, church, network, etc., has the total understanding of the entirety of the whole purpose or counsel of God. Right? Now, what is happening? Our view of this presently prophetically apostolic is this. In the church, globally, there are various apostolic prophetic expressions. We, under Thamo, to which we relate, and the household that's developing under his leadership, is the, is the sound of one expression of that water. Globally, we believe there are at least 12. There might be more, right? And the prophecy that came forth from our son's meeting the last time was that we're going to start to see in the coming years ahead the convergence of the sound of many waters. Various streams coming together, each with a particular emphasis, each having mastered specific aspects of God's whole counsel. Now, um, I use the word poignantly here in Acts 20, 27, the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. It's a phrase we're going to read about shortly. Paul said, I have not shunned, he said this to the Ephesian elders, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole package, the whole counsel, the entirety of God's purposes. Now, the whole of God is not given to be understood by one particular stream or expression. No one church has got the total mandate. No one family in the earth, no one clan, no one network, no one grouping, no one apostolic stream 
has got the handle on the totality of all of God's counsel and purpose. That's why the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. Not I, we. You can never ever singularly have the fullness of God. You're going to need the brothers. If this is true on an individual level, it's true on a, on a local church level, local churches in other churches. It's also true on an apostolic network level. And we're going to see the global, um, total expression of God's voice come together in the near future. Amen? Now, second point. He saw seven lampstands, which we said are the seven churches. Not so? What does seven indicate? Seven indicates perfection. Not so. Now, previously we taught, right? Remember we taught previously that the lampstands were an indication of perfected apostolic doctrine. Everyone say lampstand. Now, okay, don't follow your notes. Let me just explain it my own way. You can read this later. Lampstands, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. So anything with lamp in the scripture always alludes to the word of the, to the, word of the Lord. And what do lamps do? Lamps give illumination. Lamps light darkness. Lamps um, take ignorance away. Darkness is symbolic of ignorance. But a lamp which brings light dispels darkness, giving you clarity and understanding. So Paul would pray, let the eyes of your understanding be be enlightened. Okay? So lamps indicate the word which indicates Doctrine, right? But Revelation clearly says that the lampstands are what? Are the, are the churches. Now, two or three sessions ago, we did uh, a, a section in two parts. It was headed, the word of the Lord in the house of the Lord, right? Isaiah 2, Michael 4. Nations will stream up to the house of the Lord and say, do what? Teach us your ways. So the lampstand, which is the, the, the church has got to be the church filled with relevant apostolic doctrine which gives light. And kings come to the brightness of your, of your, of your shining. Okay? So the lampstands is a reference to the church, yes, but it's a reference to a church illuminated by the light of God's word, by relevant, accurate, proceeding apostolic doctrine. Are we all clear? Right? Now there are seven churches. Right? No one church, and you look at this thing even geographically, there's Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, um, Sardis, etc. No one church has got the whole sort of understanding, except Ephesus. I'll explain why I say that shortly. But each one, has a, each one is commended for particular strengths. They are chided for particular errors or weaknesses. Right? But... Each has their own unique strength. But put them collectively you, together, you get a picture of a whole sound expression of the church. That's why we need each, we need each other. Okay? Now, you, that's why I put the heading like this. Seven lampstands are a word, are word-centered churches which together represent perfected apostolic doctrine which brings light Illumination and, and, and revelation, right? The house is not the house without the word. So lampstands, which are the church, 
represent churches filled with light, filled with the lamp or the, the word of the Lord. We often say, no one of us has got it all together. But all of us together got it all. Okay? Repeat it after me. No one of us has got it all together. But all of us together got it all. That's why we need each other here, even locally. Right? The collective, I appreciate so much the word thoughts. I told Jews today to collate all of those, put them in a document, keep it for, for reference. Right? There's some powerful thoughts emerging from people sharing word thoughts, some things I didn't even think of, and they come through. What, and what you share is, is making my understanding a bit more wholesome, rounding up little darkened areas. Amen? So I want to encourage you, you all have a valid, valid contribution to make. Right? Now, the new wine is in the cluster, not in the individual grape. You all seen a, a bunch of grapes? Right? Here's a lovely verse for you. Isaiah 65 verse 8, the first part. Thus says the Lord, the new wine is found in the cluster. Right? Who loves grapes? Right? Isaiah 65 verse 8a. Right? The new wine is in the cluster. The Bible says it very clearly. Now, wine is a symbol of the revelation of the word. Water is also indicative of the word. The water of the word, listen carefully, highlights the cleansing aspects of God's word. Because water cleanses. Ephesians 5.23, wash and sanctify it with washing of water by the word of the Lord. John 17.17, now are you clean through the word which I have spoken. It, 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 It leads to, listen carefully, the water of the word refers to the purifying, cleansing aspects of the word. And also, the remo- not just, yes, cleansing from carnality and sin, but also cleansing from an, a wrong perception of things. So the man who washed in the pool of Siloam in John 9, washed in apostolic doctrine, because the, Siloam means sent, which is a reference to the apostolic. So sometimes the water of the word will cleanse and wash away some impediment in your understanding so you can see more clearly but when that happens you've got to migrate from the water of the word to the wine of the word okay now wine even looks more appealing than water in in the natural not so right so um jesus at the wedding at cana converted what water into wine both are symbolic of the word of the lord the one cleanses, one emphasizes the purifying effects of God's word and the removal of impediments. The other, the revelation of the word, the wine of the word, stresses the revelatory aspects of the word, whereby um, it's not, you know, there's a difference between revelation and information. When revelation hits you, it empowers you to function in the thing that you see that has been unveiled or opened to you. Right? It's like you've been open and there's an entrance, a penetration into that, into that dynamic. Um, Judah, in Genesis 49, verse 8 to 12, right? it, the prophecy over his life is that he's what? His eyes would be red with wine. Now, have you ever seen 
someone whose eyes are bloodshot because of too much wine. Right? <laughs> right? Come on, some of you know this thing. Or you've seen this thing. Right? The guy is drunk and uh, too much wine. And the eyes turn red. Okay. Now I'm not talking that. The Bible says Judah, prophecy over Judah, which is an apostolic tribe, which is you and I. Judah is the most accurate representation of the apostolic spirit. His eyes are red with wine. In other words, his perspective of things, the way he sees, is always from the vantage point or through the lenses of revelation. His perception and his appraisal of people and circumstances is not like an ordinary man. He sees through red eyes. He sees through eyes that have been enlightened, eyes that have been in, informed by revelation. Okay? Now, all of, all of this that I've said has bears reference on these seven lampstands, right? Word-filled churches full of the lamp or the revelation of God's, of God's word, right? This is the picture that I'm trying to Paint within your own minds concerning what John saw. Okay? John sees not one church. God shows him seven. God is showing him a corporality. Not one grape. God is showing him a cluster. God is saying the new wine is in the, the cluster. The new wine is in the completeness of all that they, that they represent. Then God shows him the leaders of these churches. Now the leaders of these churches are angels. Not celestial beings with wings. Angels are reference to earthly leaders positioned over the house of God to dispense grace by the word of God with the ultimate intent of forming Christ in every man. Right? So he sees the leadership and the leadership is in whose hands? It's in the hands of the Lord. Okay? Not just any hand of the Lord. It's in the, the right hand and that's significant. It's not in the left hand. It's in the, the right hand. The right hand on page 3 in your notes, uh, I've, I've indicated the right hand, in the middle there somewhere, represents a position of strength, power, and executive authority. Everyone say execute. To execute a task means to carry out the task. Now, When you think of executive power, authority, it always alludes to the capacity to get things done, to actually... Uh, empower the performance of the thing to get the job done. So it also alludes to powerful capacity to execute and do the will of the Lord. Right? For example, the Bible says the right hand of the Lord does valiantly in the book of Psalms. Right? Everything about the right hand of the Lord is always performance oriented. Yes, it's power, it's government, it's authority, but the intent is always doing something. Right? So how does God affect His will in the church? His will is effected through, in and through, leaders over houses, right? When it comes to strategic developments of God's will in the earth, He will work through leaders over houses. Say that again, very important for you to understand that. Whenever it comes to strategic developments of His vast purposes globally in the earth, God will always work through a leader over a house, Right? His purposes for your life um, at your workplace. 
God, for example, doesn't have to consult me to get that done. Because that concerns you and your domain. But if God has to move things strategically for a large number of people, He will work through an appointed leader in His right hand, an angelos. Direct the affairs over His house. Okay? God didn't tell everybody He's he's delivering the Israelites from Egypt. It's all one man, Moses. Right? A strategic move is always through a leader over over a large group of people. Right? So this is the impression that I want you to get that John sees the leaders in the right hand of the Lord empowered to move and give momentum to God's purposes in the earth. Okay? Now, listen carefully. Right at the top of page 3. These leaders, listen carefully, teach you the word of the Lord. Bring revelation, bring illumination, bring understanding. But I like the the focus on, while there are seven lampstands, the image of a perfected church, word-centered church, full with light and revelation, that's, that's fine. But also, in the right hand, it's not just seven leaders, but seven always indicates perfection. So these are leaders that have reached perfection. Right? But the one thing you must always treasure is a mature spiritual father. I don't think I'm there quite there yet. I think I'm still in process in many respects. But that's why for me a person like uh, the fathers that we submit to are so, they're, they're like rarities. They are, they are the most valuable assets on the planet today. Right? Um, one time somebody was transporting Thamo somewhere and I said, hey brother, be careful. Drive slowly, drive carefully. You've got precious cargo. Yeah, you you transporting. You don't take chances here. Right? It's like that thing must be cherished. That dynamic must be looked after. You know why? It takes years and years and years and years to get a man to that place. Right? How long did it take God to develop Moses? Eighty years. Forty in Pharaoh's courts, forty years under Jethro, and he comes back empowered to lead Israel. And even so, still when he wanted to do that, God sought to kill him after spending 40 years. There was an aspect of his preparation in that he forgot to circumcise his sons that still needed to be put right in his life. So whenever you have a perfected expression of leadership or spiritual fathering that you are privy to in your sphere, always nurture and Cherish it. Amen? Very, very, very important. So the seven expressions of these, these angelosis indicates perfection in them. In that, listen carefully, they have literally also become the doctrine, the revelation or the light that they seek to bring to their, to their people. Now in this regard, Israel regarded David as the lamp. Right? In 2 Samuel 21, 17b, they say to David, his mighty men who fought in a battle, then the men of David swore to him saying, you shall not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. David's men were so protective of David that they said, don't come fight with us in the next battle lest you die. Because if you die, the lamp goes out for Israel. The lights are switched off for the whole nation. 
what they realized is strategic vital movements of globe of divine purpose in Israel happened through David. You you take him out of the equation, they realize we might be fine on maybe certain levels of our existence, but when it comes to strategic movement in the nation, you are vital, you are the lamp of Israel. Right? And if word is lamp, they're literally saying to him, you are the embodiment of God's mind, of God's word to us. Right? You are the lamp of Israel to us. Okay? Now, it says in Revelation 1.16, in his right hand are seven, seven stars. And out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. In the same verse, seven leaders perfected leadership strategic for God's uh, significant development in any jurisdiction. Seven hands in his right hand to move executive uh, authority to move executive, so executive authority, authority to move his global purposes in his right hand. And in the same breath, he says, there's a two-edged sword in my mouth. So God speaks through these leaders. But listen carefully. The word is a sharp two-edged sword. Everyone say sharp. Now the word sharp literally means, oxus is the Greek. It means two things. Literally sharp, yes, but also it means quick or swift. Quick or swift. But oxus, the root from which oxus is derived. The root word means acid. And what does acid do? (laughs) Acid burns up, disintegrates material. So listen carefully. What John is seeing And he obviously knows the the implication of all these Greek words. A sharp, this word's going to come quick and it's going to be like acid in its effect. It's going to burn up and disintegrate every erroneous position. So whatever comes, and I see this happening in my own life recently, both here locally and in the nations where we minister. It's like when we speak, we're burning erroneous things up in the spirit. It's like when we utter the sound of word, a sharp two-edged sword is going, is bringing conviction, is bringing disintegration to erroneous or even sinful positions in the lives of people individually, or sometimes in the construct of a whole local house. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It's important for you to understand this. Why? Because God says to him, write what you see. And he's going to start to write what he sees and hears. And God's going to talk to him about how he's going to come to seven churches. And the messages and the words that are going to proceed out of his mouth are not going to be like, like sharp, two-edged swords. Right? So what the Lord is doing for John is configuring his mind to what he's about to experience in terms of a message for each local, for each local church. So do you get the picture? That's basically the introduction. Okay? This is the picture that John sees. Now let's go to the detail. In chapter 2, he starts to write to each of these, to each of these churches. Just look at, again, on, on page 4, look at their location quickly before we read the, the, the passage. You can see the seven churches. I've got two maps there. The one on your left is a depiction of their location in Asia Minor. Asia Minor at this time is under Roman 
still under a Roman province, under Roman rule. Okay? And um, the picture on the right just shows you um, the broad spectrum of things in terms of the location of Asia Minor, the Black Sea to the north, the Asian Sea to the left, and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. And you get part of Palestine um, on the extreme bottom right, like the cities of Antioch, Seleucia, are, are recorded there. And then to the extreme right of that left map, left of that left map, you'll get places like Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, right? So you more or less have a good sense geographically of the kind of area that John is speaking into. It's very important for you to understand this geography, right? So that you have a bearing in terms of what he's about to say, okay? So you can see there, the first church he's going to address is Ephesus. Can you see where Ephesus is located? Right? Ephesus is a port, port city, not so? It's in fact closest to where he is. He's in the Isle of Patmos, you can see that. And Ephesus is the closest to him. And he's going to write to each church specific things. What we're going to look at tonight only is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Do your own study on the letter to each other church. Dr. Segi has got a wonderful, wonderful study on decoding the message to each of these churches. But we'll just focus on Revelation, on Ephesus tonight. Okay, go back to Revelation 2 on page 3. <clears throat> to the angel at the church at Ephesus write. So the angel is the leader, the spiritual father over this church. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now, the one who holds the seven stars... Who are the seven stars again? The, the leaders, the seven angels. Keep you, you must keep reminding yourself of this. So, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among what? The seven golden lampstands. Who are the lampstands? The churches, filled, word-centered churches, full with light, illumination, full with apostolic doctrine. So God says to this church, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. I know how hard you work. I know the, 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 the labor, the industry within this church. You can't tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who even call themselves apostles. So question, does this church have discernment? Even false apostles are routed out by this church. This church can sense the false dynamic. The church is very hard. It perseveres. There's an endurance in that they persevere. They don't buckle under easily. I'll tell you never that's you. <laughs> from, from what I know of some of you here. Right? Industrious, hard, pushing. You're able to discern the false when it comes, especially a false apostolic expression. Because there will be false apostles in the last day. So Ephesus is able to discern all of this. Now listen carefully. You have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You don't give up. You don't faint. But verse 4, but I have this against you. With all of the good going for you, God says to them, but you have left what? You have left your first love. Remember from whence you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you. And I will remove what? I will remove your lampstand. Now, if you know what lampstand is, as we just discussed, a reference to the church 
filled with revelation, light, doctrine, God is saying, I will actually remove your status as a church. I'll remove, and listen carefully, when I remove my word from you, you lose your status as a church. Do you know, I think there are many so-called churches today that are only recognized legally by the African government because they are registered, but have no recognition in the heavens. Right? Because their lampstands have been removed from them. Okay? Now listen carefully. Unless you repent, you, yet you have this going for you, he says in verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of, which is in the paradise of God. And then you will read on in the rest of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, the content to the, all the other churches. What I want to emphasize on page 4, of the seven churches, Ephesus is listed first. The first position is an apostolic position. It, this is an apostolic position that leads the way into the fullness of God's purposes. Now, look at how, I just put how Christ introduces himself to each church before he speaks to them. Leave Ephesus out, but go to Smyrna. Okay, just, just pay attention here for one moment. It's important for you to understand this. Before Christ addresses the church, Christ first describes himself in a particular way before he comes to that church. And to each church, he is described differently. So Christ is coming in a different, in a different facet of his nature to each church. So you've got to understand the totality of Christ to understand his total being. Each, understand each segment to understand his totality. Now, to Smyrna, he comes like this. He says, Thus I am the first and the last, which was dead and has come to life. To Pergamum, he says, I am the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. To Thyatira, he says, I am the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet are like varnished or, or burnished bronze. To Sardis, he says, I am he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which are the seven leaders. To the church of Philadelphia, he says, the way God introduces himself is, I am he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. To Laodicea, he says, I am the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. But to Ephesus, listen carefully, Ephesus is the first of all the seven churches to be addressed. And I'm saying to us, Ephesus occupies an apostolic position of leadership over the whole area. This church is first amongst the churches. This church is a lead church amongst. Now how do we know that? It's because of the way God introduces himself to Ephesus when he comes. Look, look what God says to Ephesus. I am the one who, who holds who? I am the one who holds the seven leaders in their hand. And what do I do? I actually walk among the seven golden lampstands. 
Now, God is saying to this church, please remember, depending on how Christ introduces himself to the church, that dynamic or nature of Christ becomes accessible to that church. Right? So when Christ says to Ephesus, Church at Ephesus, I'm writing to you, and I'm coming to you as one who actually is holding, controlling, directing all the leaders of all the churches. And I come to you like that. Because what I do, I want you to do, church at Ephesus. Also he's saying, I'm not just um, directing um, the seven leaders. I also, I come to you as one who does what? Now, he says, I walk among, I'm just doing this purposely. I walk among, I'm doing this purposely, please watch me. I walk among the seven churches, the seven golden lampstands. That's how I come to you, church at Ephesus. You are amongst the seven, but I have a, Christ is saying, I have a view of all seven churches, and you have the same view that I have, not just of yourself, Ephesus, but you understand all the other churches. Right? So this is an apostolic by the way, I won't have, uh, wouldn't have time, it's not our focus. The Greek for walk is to walk like an inspector in a circular motion. The word is parapateo, right? To walk with a view of doing a forensic analysis, um, an appraisal, and an estimation of the accuracy or the effectiveness of each church. So, church at Ephesus. While you'll also be part of this process, I give you the privilege of being able to do the same for all the other churches. So the church at Ephesus has got an elevated position. Right? In fact, um, I don't know where I've got this somewhere. Look at the bottom of page 5. Or if you look at your map, don't even go there, I'll, just, I'll, I'll allude to it. Look at your map, where is Ephesus located? It's a port city, not so? In fact, it, I did some reading on this. Ephesus was quite an illustrious city in its day. Right? This massive port. It was a kind of gateway. It was, it was the, the primary port of entry into the entire region. Right? It was known for the worship of Diana. Diana or Artemis. You'll read this in the book of Acts. Diana or Artemis. They would refer to her as Diana of the Ephesians. Right? Please bear in mind the book of Ephesians. I won't have time to refer to it yet. But Paul would later write, before all this, Paul actually wrote to this church. Right? The book of Ephesians. This Ephesus, and most scholars will tell you, the book of Ephesians was one of Paul's most profound books. You, I mean, who has, who here of you has taken the time to study Ephesians, just the first three chapters. Heavy stuff, Paul talks about. Serious mystery. He could talk on a deep level to this congregation. Most theologians and present-day apostles will tell you, Ephesus was probably the most mature church that Paul ever encountered. Right? So this church has got a strategic place, not so? Yet, in its before Paul's ministry there, it was given to idolatry, Diana of the Ephesians. Um, there was this massive temple. Um, in fact, history actually says the Ephesians were regarded as the stewards of Diana. 
right? They, the guardians of every um, uh, thing associated with her, with the worship. History says there was a massive amphitheater dedicated to her right at the port. Could host, hold about 50,000 people. Um, and in there, all sorts of uh, things and games would be held, fighting with wild beasts, etc. By the way, I read a, a verse in, in Corinthians. I meant to put it in your note. I'm just remembering it now. It was at, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, take this reference down. Paul said this, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Right? He actually says, Paul says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, I don't think he was alluding to the games in this amphitheater where it was, it was said that people actually fought wild animals for sport, you know, and most times the animals would win. I don't think Paul was alluding to that natural thing. I, I believe he was alluding to demonic hosts, powers, and principalities. Paul spent at least three years, we know, from the scriptures. He spent a long time here. How long did he spend at Corinth? Anyone know? At Corinth, Paul only spent one and a half years. Right? And he left. He left Apollos there and he left. In, in Ephesians, he came. They begged him to stay the first time. And he left. And on his return, he came. And he met John's disciples there, etc. And he stayed for at least three years that we know. Two years, one version, one scripture says. And a, a later report in his words, the Ephesian elders, he says, I have not shunned every day from house to house and in the synagogues to teach you for the space of three years with humility, with crying, testifying to you the whole counsel of God. So there was significant warfare here, not so? The, the warfare is understandable because of the mandate of this, of this church. Now, I don't know about you, I sense the same for our local house. The mandate for our local house is quite significant. Hence, we fight wild beasts. Hence the level of warfare we sense in the spirit from time to time. But I want to encourage you, God has got an awesome mandate for us. To the church at Ephesus, they get a view, go to page 5, they get a view of the, the state of the entire corporate church. They have this understanding of where the church is globally, Right? Now, the second paragraph. The church at Ephesus sees the complete picture. It therefore can endure evil. It's intolerant of evil. It cannot endure evil, sorry. It's intolerant of evil. They hate the spirit of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitan, the word Nicolaitan means destroyer or conqueror of the, of the people. The Nicolaitans were a sect held that held to the teaching of Balaam, which has the effect, amongst many things, of eroding the purity of God's people through inaccurate relationships. Remember, Balaam deceived Israel and he deceived them into marrying uh, and to mixing the seed to, to marrying foreign nations, diluting the purity of God's image and seed in the nation. This church hates any attempt of false apostles to, to, to mar the image of Christ in the sons of God. Hate the spirit of the, the Nicolaitans. It's a destroyer of the people. That's what the word Nicolaitans mean. Conquer of the people, destroying God's people by destroying God's image in them. 
And this church hates that spirit in the global church. It knows how to rout out false apostolic expressions. They're commended for their diligence, for their hard labor, their industry, um, their endurance, their perseverance. But the one thing, everyone say one thing. the, The singular thing that is isolated where they are, there's, there's a cross against their name. God says to them, but you've left your first love. You've left your first love. Remember the place from which you have fallen. Now please bear this in mind. In describing, listen carefully, this church has got an awesome responsibility and mandate in the whole area. Listen carefully. And I'll show you how after the break, how this happened. How this church, under Paul's leadership, initially then under Timothy's leadership, impacted, the Bible says, and everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what happened here at Ephesus. How they fell from this privileged position. Note the words used. and These words caught me when I read it. Left. Everyone say left. God says to them, you left your first love. God says to them, remember the position from which you have fallen. So if you fall from a position, you fall from a high to a low. So Ephesus lost their elevated position that granted them perception and sight over the state of the global church. right? And the Bible says they left. The word left is aphemi, as indicated in your notes. means you've forsaken, you lay aside, you left, you omitted or you disregarded your first love. It means to let go. Uh, to let go from one's further notice, to let go from your care and for your attendance, your occupancy, the thing that you occupy yourself with. Now, I'm going to demonstrate to you the next session. The thing that they were seriously preoccupied with before this happened was an obsessive, I use the word obsessive deliberately, was a literal obsessive devotion to one thing, to the Word of God. That granted them empowerment to function as an apostolic leading church in their jurisdiction. But you you went when you go away from that, you fall. I think I think about it like this. You go away from this is your love for the word. This point represents your love for the word. When you go away from that occupancy, as the word suggests, you go down. And the Bible says, remember the place from which you have fallen. Repent. What does the Bible say? Do the first deeds. So what is the church at Ephesus called to do? Remember how you left your first love. And remember the place, the elevated position from which you have fallen. Repent and do the first deeds. In other words, to get back there, start to to do deeds. Come on, everyone say deeds. Right? Deeds. Don't uh, couples have this? You've lost your first love. Why, honey? You don't do the deeds you did at first. You know those little deeds? Opening the door. Little things you did when you were totally in love. Okay? So God is saying to the church at Ephesus, go back and do the first deeds. Get back to your, get back to your, First love, right? Now, the first 
love of Ephesus was their love for the word of God. Okay, so we're at the bottom of page five. The heading there, understanding the church at Ephesus. What I want to talk about now is give you a broad overview of some of the spiritual activity at Ephesus. Some of the things that actually happened here in their first deeds. Now, the revelation says, go back to your first occupancy, your first preoccupation. Go back to your first deeds. So we want to go back to what things actually happened here. What were, what were the priorities, especially in the initial beginnings of this church, that caused them to be such a powerful apostolic pioneering church in their day? Right? So let's look at Acts 18. First, some of the first indications of the city. They came to Ephesus, and he, that's this Paul and his associates, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, and he reasoned with the, he reasoned with the Jews. They asked him to stay for a longer time, but he did not consent. So Paul did not want to stay. He just went for a brief session in the synagogue reasoning, and he was off again, taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And as it so happened, God willed it, right? So Paul's, Paul wasn't certain about his work here. He just says, a brief stint here in the synagogue, I reason with the Jews, I'm off somewhere else. The guys are begging him, please stay, because they realize, hey, light, a lamp, the lamp of God's purpose has come here. They beg him to stay. He's got his mind on, on, on other jurisdictions and cities he must go to. And he says, if God permits, if it's God's will, I will come back here to the city, Okay. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and he went down to Antioch. You can check these places on the map later. And he spent some time there and he left and he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So Paul goes on a long, one of his missionary journeys, strengthening the churches and the, the disciples. So from verse 24 onwards, we're going to read of a man by the name of Apollos, who is still at Ephesus. Why I chose to slot this in is because these things happen at Ephesus. These doings in terms of Apollos' life happen at this strategic place in the spirit called Ephesus. A Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to where? He came to Ephesus. He was what? Everyone say mighty in the scriptures. Everything about Ephesus has got to do with the word. Everything about Ephesus has got to do with someone being a student and mighty in what? In word, in scriptures. And here this, what seems to be a disciple of John's, Apollos. He's mighty in the scriptures. Check this guy's CV out. Number one, mighty in the scriptures. Number two, instructed in the the way of the Lord. Number three, fervent in spirit. Number four, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. How is that CV? Who would like that? Okay, I must write a letter. I'm sending my son Mark to you. This guy is mighty in the scriptures, fervent in, 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 in spirit. He speaks and teaches accurately the way of the Lord. But the sad thing, the limitation is, being only acquainted with the baptism of John. So Paulus was learned to a degree. But what he knew, he was very good at. Right? The, in other words, the revelation that he was exposed to in his day, he mastered it. 
And he was fervent, passionate about it. What the Bible says in verse 26, he began to boldly speak out in the synagogue. Right? And he persuades men about Jesus Christ in terms of John's message. When Priscilla and Aquila, now this couple was a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila were two of Paul's companions, associates. They also at Ephesus, and they hear him speak boldly in the synagogue. They took him away and explained to him the way of God more, more accurately. Right? So Apollos taught the way of the Lord accurately. Underline the word accurately in verse 25 and underline the word more accurately in verse 26. So Apollos went from accuracy to, to more accuracy. Let me ask you again, please be in mind, where are these things taking place? Ephesus is a place of upgrade in the spirit. You can't come to Ephesus and remain where you are in terms of your understanding of God's purposes. This location, this place, is something that, about, about what happens in this city that upgrades people. Right? Then the Bible says, they taught him the way of the Lord more accurately. He wanted to go across to Achaia, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples too to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by what? Demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This man was mighty in the scriptures, acquainted only with the baptism of John. He allowed himself to be upgraded by two of Paul's associates. They teach him the way of the Lord more accurately. Um, and then the Bible says he goes back into the region of Achaia and he meets the Jews in public, powerfully demonstrating from the word, from the scriptures, that Jesus was the, was the Christ. Okay? Now look in the next chapter. The first deeds of the church at Ephesus are recorded in Acts 19. I just put this portion we've just read from Acts 18 to show you that it's a place where a man might in the scriptures was transitioned into the current speaking of the Lord. All happens at Ephesus. And he's sent out into other regions. Ephesus is like a launching pad. It's a catapult. You, it, what happens at Ephesus has impact in regions far beyond Ephesus. Right? Tell your neighbor, welcome to Ephesus. We had a testimony I was sharing um, today. A testimony. I spoke to a gentleman from Chile last night. Um, his question to me was, do you understand Spanish? Can you read, write, understand Spanish? I said, no. Um, so he says, well, um, I'm teaching your, your course to seven pastors in Spanish. Seven leaders gather and he's teaching them. So he worried about the possibility of writing this in Spanish. Um, I said, well, I always had the desire to learn it, but I remember I started, but then I stopped. But now I'm going to get back on that. I think God has got something in there. Um, but I was so encouraged when he said that he's gathering these seven pastors and he's teaching this material to them. And they are pastors totally frustrated with the Pentecostal charismatic season. And they've come to him and he's expressing such gratitude for what we are doing here. A thought dawned upon me, what, what we're doing here 
is having an impact half across the way, right, uh, around the world, the other side of the globe, in South America, Chile, right? And there's the possibility of an apostolic school being organized for 2014 in that area. And a prophecy was launched, and I was my witness, at Tamos, at the Sun's Gathering before the, before the school, remember? That South America will open to this message. Right? Dr. Ben is already doing some marvelous work in Argentina. I'm following on Facebook and see the work that he's doing. These Latin American nations are opening up big time to this message. Amen. So I want to encourage you to value what's happening here and allow your eyes to be to be open. That's why sometimes it ails my heart that some of our own people don't value this forum on a Friday evening. Right? Uh, we must get back. God is saying to this house, remember your first deeds. Get back because the mandate here will be lost if you lose your first deeds. Get back to a word-centered focus. Prioritize your capacity to upgrade, not just yourself, but you be the locus point from which others in your jurisdiction all over the world could be, could be upgraded. Now let's read the first deeds. I just love reading the scripture. For me, even if I don't teach tonight, I just read this portion, I'm happy. Who loves the word of the Lord? Amen. I just love the Bible. Especially the book of Acts is so dramatic. It's so, with so much goings on here in the book of Acts. So much twists and turns and marvelous doings of the Lord. Right? Now, at Ephesus, listen carefully. It happened while this guy, Apollos, just upgraded now. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus. Not so? Remember he said if God wills? So God willed. So he's back in the region, right? He comes to Ephesus and he found some disciples. These are John's disciples. Now these guys were probably schooled by Apollos. Remember Apollos was, he knew the baptism up to John very well. Right? He was a leader, obviously he had some kind of influence. He was a leader of some kind, a man mighty in the scriptures. This guy's fervent, he's an eloquent speaker, the Bible says. He has a way with words, Apollos. So he, he's got this group of disciples that Paul encounters. So Paul says to them, now on again, tell your neighbor, all at Ephesus. It's all happening at a place called Ephesus. He came to them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, no, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul, listen carefully, introduces them to the baptism in the Holy Spirit, an experience that John didn't teach, obviously because the Holy Spirit was not given in John's dispensation. Everyone say upgrade. upgrade. Where does upgrade happen? All right. Now listen carefully. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men. What does the number 12 symbolize? The apostolic principle. All these things are very significant, right? Twelve men. So, now look what Paul does to these twelve. Former disciples of John. Schooled by Apollos, probably. He entered the synagogue. 
And he continued speaking out boldly for how long? Three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. When some of them became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's why I show you the map. The map is very important. Eh? Just have a cursory look at it again. Where is he? He's at the port city of Ephesus. In the space of two years and three months, by the end of it, the Bible says, everyone, not only in Ephesus, but everyone in Asia, hears the word of the Lord, and the word is beamed or launched from this city. Ephesus has got like a, a, a sphere of influence. Whatever happens here, or oh, by the way, the, naturally, politically, Ephesus was the, the capital of the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor. Here the proconsul sat. Whatever happened at Ephesus would happen in the entire province. Decisions, strategic decisions were taken at the, the capital. Conditioned life in the whole, the, whole geog- the whole geographical region. So what is true in the natural was also true in the spirit. Right? Everyone in Asia hears the word of the Lord. Check this out also. Both Jews and Greeks, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles was being formed. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So the miraculous, so that handkerchiefs, aprons, were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempting to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus that Paul preaches. So these guys, listen carefully, sons of Sceva, right, were Jewish exorcists. Now an exorcist is someone that drives demons out of people, right? So they, they see Paul's success in the apostolic. And they want to copy They want to get the same results as what Paul has without transitioning into the season. So they latch onto a formula. They won't say formula. They're formula oriented without the reality of the thing. So when they pray for demons, they say, guys, I I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus that Paul is busy preaching. Come out. Right? Right? So what does does the demons, demons respond to them and say? Right? Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Right? But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Right? These guys had no recognition in the spirit. They were a religious organization. This is, everyone say Sceva. Sceva, spiritual father. Seven sons. So they got the father-son dynamic going here. There's a father with perfected sonship. Seven of them, perfection. He's perfected the father-son wineskin in the wrong order, as it were. Still under Jewish old covenant. He's, still, he's a Jewish high priest. Right? Now you got no business being a high priest in Acts 19. Jesus died in the Gospels. 
This is Acts 19. You're still doing your high priestly work. Right? What happened? He failed to transition when the season shifted. So he's a high priest still maintaining the Levitical system of the Old Covenant. And he's training others in a system that is archaic, obsolete in the spirit. Listen carefully. Tell you about all at Ephesus. While some are changing and upgrading like Apollos, like the 12 disciples coming into, there's a group that is still hard and resistant against change, holding to an outdated former position, seeming to be relevant because they got father, son, seeming to be relevant because they're anti-Satan's works, driving out demons, etc., but got no recognition in the spirit realm, even by the domain of the demonic. Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? The demons say. Some people can give you recognition on earth, but your greatest recognition must come from the unseen world. Okay? I love what William Hinn says. Sometimes he gives the um, testimony in his Kingdom Economics series. Uh, he walked in some, he went to some country, and he says, as he walked to this hotel, he knew in his spirit as he was walking to the corridor, it was like whole principalities were giving way. So, no, let him, let him through. He's let him through. He's got a right to be here. A recognition in the spirit of who you are and what you represent before before the Lord. Okay? At Ephesus, you either qualified or disqualified, recognized or not, or not recognized. Right? Now listen carefully. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear came upon them all, and the name of the Lord was being magnified. Many also of those who believed came, confessing and disclosing their practices. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together with, uh, and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the, piece, the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And I like this. This commentary, right at the end of it all. And the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Right? At Ephesus, the word grows mightily and prevails. Okay, the first point we've mentioned. Ephesus, a place of upgrade and trend. Of upgrade and transition. Turn over the page. Apollos upgrades from an accurate way to a more accurate way. Twelve disciples of John upgrade, not knowing the baptism in the Holy Spirit, upgrading to that experience, the nowness of what God was stressing in that epoch of, in that um, epoch of time. At Ephesus, listen carefully, a false leadership is exposed for what it truly is. Skiva. Everyone say Skiva. Please don't call your child Skiva. <laughs> They'll call him Skivi. Eh? You are Skivi. <laughs> Skiva, Skiva means what? Left-handed. I think I got it somewhere there. Okay, Skiva means left-handed. At some point, you know, don't don't bother to find it. Just make a note somewhere. So listen carefully. Skiva means left-handed. The left hand is a position of weakness, because the right hand, of the Lord, is a position of strength and power. 
he doesn't have executive authority to express the will of the Lord in his day. He's left handed in the spirit. Right? Skiva's name, just put the full amount of his name, it's got a wide range of meanings. Skiva means left handed, it means I dispose. It also means mind reader. Three things Skiva. Left handed, I dispose. And mind reader. But Lee, at Ephesus, listen carefully. Ephesus is the place of transition and upgrade. And those who refuse to upgrade are exposed for having lost spiritual weight and worth. Spiritual stature, spiritual recognition. You've lost it. Now, you attempt to copy the results of Paul. They, I mean, these exorcists, they're driving out demons. Maybe they had a measure of success, not so. They seem to be good at what they do. I mean, this is Acts 19. The guys are still practicing. <laughs> and listen carefully. By the way, Ephesus was given to a lot of um, dabbling in the occult. Hence, people are demon-possessed. Left, right, and center. Right? Remember that the result was, yeah, many people brought their books of magic. So libraries, the, the reading material of the day was accessing the supernatural. How to access the unseen well, so magical arts were the order of the day. And people brought books, and the value of the books burnt on this day was 50,000 pieces of silver. Add this in your notes. Listen carefully to the maths. The modern equivalent would be 50,000 pieces of silver equates to 50,000 drachmas, the, the, the currency, the Greek drachma. One drachma is one day's labor. Payment for one day's work, a full day's work. So the value of the books equated to 50,000 drachmas. If you divide 50,000 by 365 to get the number of years, it works out to 137 years of working every day, the wages. That is what the value of the books burnt on this day were. So you can see Ephesus' preoccupation with occultic power. They want to access the supernatural. But here Paul, all Paul is doing, he does two things. He reasons and he persuades about the kingdom of God daily in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And the success, he, dis, he, 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 brought, he brings such success. Others who do not want to transition into the season like Sceva, they look at the success of Paul's ministry and they try to copy him. They want to still ply the trade of exorcism, but using a formula. I, I command you by, by Jesus that Paul is preaching, come out! The demon says, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but where you come from? Who are you? You've got no recognition here. right? You might have been ordained in the old covenant as a high priest, but you haven't transitioned. You are skiva. You are left-handed in the spirit. You've got no executive power and authority to, to drive us out. Let me just say this to you. What we're going to see happen, prophesy over this house. Because of our diligence with the word of the Lord, God's attendant with us are going to have some specific results that others who fail to transition are going to look at that and try to mimic and copy the results that God is going to give the apostolic season. We're right at the, the entry of these things. They will want the results without buying the field. 
without transitioning. And that process is going to expose their lack of spiritual weight and worth and authority. We're going to see the exposure of illegal fathering, illegal skivers, right? Because they're busy perfecting sonship in their orders, and their sons will be twice as bad as they are, right? And God's going to expose this. The Bible says these demons stripped them naked. On Sunday, I spoke about re-robing. There's some that are going to be derobed. There's some garments that are going to be taken off. And when you are stripped naked, you are stripped of function, you are stripped of authority, and you run. And what does the Bible say? This became known throughout the whole city of Ephesus. And then uh, people believe, and the, the, the books are burnt. And the word of the Lord grows mightily and prevails. There's going to come a supernatural power of signs, wonders, and miracles, I believe. To us, I want to encourage you begin to expect this. I'm so encouraged by Francis Rupert's next book. It's going to be released in July at the Open Heaven Conference. It's called The Supernatural. I saw the cover on Facebook. It speaks about the, 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 the signs and wonders manifestations attendant with the apostolic season that we're about to access. Amen? So, but it's going to be, it's going to mean the derobing of many who will try to mimic the level of success that we're going to enjoy without transitioning. Okay, and it will bring, it will bring great exposure. Tell you, this all happens at Ephesus. But let me just keep reminding you, the basis upon which all of this is happening is a man by the name of Paul, daily, say daily, daily in the school of Tyrannus for two years, to the Ephesian elders, he actually said three years, but this one says, two years, I reason with you daily concerning the word of God. Upon this platform, things start to happen and great exposure of illegal leadership and, the, and the, the final is the word of the Lord grows mightily and prevails. What is the basis for all of the signs and wonders? Everyone say word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. I am building the foundation. <laughs> the word of the Lord. Number two, Ephesus, a place of reasoning and persuading regarding the kingdom. Now, these two are very important words to understand. In Acts 19, verse 8, he entered the synagogue. He continued speaking out boldly for three months, okay? And then um, reasoning and persuading, right? And then verse 9, some were hardened and disobedient, and they spoke evil of the way. Everyone say the way. The way was a term used to describe Christians, right? They were called people of the, people of the way, the hodos, the method. Right? These are the methodology of Christ in their world. People of the way. So Paul reasons and persuades for three months. Some are hard and they become, they start to malign the people of the way. So Paul says, no problem, I just withdraw from the synagogue and I go into a lecture hall. The school of Tyrannus was a hall, literal lecture hall, where philosophers of the day would come and they would dispute and reason about various things. So Paul says, well, that's the ideal place that I will talk about the kingdom. And he spends two years here and his methodology. Listen to Paul's modus operandi. Two things. Reason and persuade. Right? Listen carefully. The word reason is dialegomai, which means to speak back and forth alternately. To converse with, to reason. To present an intelligent discourse. To say thoroughly, that is to discuss, to converse, 
to discourse with one, to argue, to discuss. So can you picture Paul in the school of Tyrannus every day for two years? Tell you about this happened every day for two years. Every day for two years. The Amplified Bible says from 10 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. He would come. All he would do, pull the scriptures out and reason. It wasn't the kind of preaching. It was more of a dialogue. He would argue intelligently with the philosophers of his day. These, um, oh, by the way, the 12 disciples were, were drawn. And so he was basically teaching and his audience was growing, I believe, daily. Right? So Paul had this capacity to intelligently argue with someone and then persuade you. I reason with you to persuade you. What does Paul do? He reasons and he persuades. Now, please, I want to encourage us all. Tell your neighbor you have a spiritual persuasive capacity. I want to encourage you. Don't be intimidated by intelligible, intelligent arguments leveled against you. Paul says the apostolic, we can cast down imaginations, every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. Um, and I want to encourage you. Um, look at the word persuade. The word persuade means to persuade another to receive a belief. Hmm? Pitho is the Greek. To convince someone. When last have you convinced someone about the way? <laughs> the what God is being present. And it's not just a mental exercise. You convince someone from the demonstrating by the scriptures like Apollos did. Leading Christ out of the word. You demonstrate to someone about God's will and emphasis today. Right? Ephesus, now please circle this. Reason and persuade in the heading. That's a place of reasoning and persuading regarding the regarding the kingdom of God. For you to reason and persuade, what does it presuppose? You must have a thorough grasp on your, on your material, not so? You must know your, your stuff. You must be well-versed. You must be a ready, a ready scribe. In Akuru, um, Thamo said, the one session, one of the days says, um, I don't think we should carry on teaching after lunch. Let's have one long session of questions and answers. All of you guys sit up there, let them ask you questions. And so we set up, four of us, myself, Quivers, James, and Thamo. And then all the questions were collected. And you just read over the mic. The reader question, I was like, none of you answer that. You just don't answer? There's no time to look. Let me just first read my manual <laughs> and see what I don't. You just have to reflexively give a response to a concern that some pastor is having over the material that was presented to him. I want to encourage you. You've got to be quick off the draw. Right? You've got to know your stuff. This house has got to study more than what we are doing. This house has got to review material release at the previous apostolic schools much more than what we're doing. Arm your mind with, with the word of the Lord. In your note here, I wrote uh, right at the bottom of page 8, the paragraph there. If you look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and if you look at Stephen's defense in Acts 7, especially Stephen's one, these were not like modern-day preachers who were just throwing a few catchphrases, yeah, maybe colloquial spiritual terms here and there, one or two scriptures. 
Peter presents, and Stephen, especially, please, when you go home tonight, just out of interest, sake, read Acts 7. And see when this man was called to give a defense before the Sanhedrin. Right? And Paul was there, by the way, Saul of Tarsus. He was a learned man himself under Gamaliel. And Stephen, Acts 7 is quite a long chapter. And Stephen's talking one way. He stands up and he gives an answer to the accusations leveled against him. And I like how he starts. From the time, he says, men and brethren, from the time of Moses and the prophets. And he starts a discourse relating God's, God's purposes throughout the Old Testament to their modern day. Intelligible. Everyone say reason and persuade. The Bible says they were pricked to the hearts when they heard these things. And they still decide to kill him afterwards. It was his last sermon. Sometimes your, your last sermon is your, your, leads to your death. Okay. You know what? Who, who commissioned Stephen's death, by the way? Saul, who became Paul. Yes, Saul is persecuting Christians. I mean, I think these words must have hit, made a last impact upon the apostle. Eh? And he orders, he orders Stephen's death. Here he sees a man dying for what he believes. And in his death, he's forgiving everybody. Lord, hold not the sin to their charge. And he says, I see the heavens open and the Lord standing at the right hand of the, of the majesty on, on high. Okay? Many people say Stephen would have been the Paul of the New Testament had he not died so prematurely in terms of the way he argued. Okay? But, okay, what I want to stress to us as a house, get back to studying the word like you've never studied before. Get back to penetrative inquiry into the word. Let not one day go by. Chris, all the young people here, um, the married couples, every Moira, all of us. I don't want to single all of you out by name, but all of us, without you learning something new, consolidating your understanding, your love for the word must be so intense. All of this happens at, at Ephesus. A man, Paul, for two solid years, daily, arguing, reasoning, persuading Jews and Greeks in the school of Tyrannus. Okay? Look at the next point quickly. Ephesus, a place of intense encounters with the word from an authentic apostolic source. Okay? Like I said, for two years daily. I put the Amplified Bible here in the middle there somewhere. Acts 19 verse 9b. He separated from them, taking the disciples with him and holding daily discussions in the lecture room of Tyrannus from about 10 o'clock until about 3. How's that? 10 in the morning. We're we complaining from Opus 9 to Opus 11 here on a Sunday. Or 9 to Opus 11 on a Sunday. Paul's church was every day for two years from 10 a.m. to 3 in the afternoon. Let me just say this. Do we want to, Paul's mind was, think, you know, Paul's a very wise man. Eh? He's very calculating. He comes into a city, riddled, illustrious city, a lot of commerce, gateway, it's the capital of the Roman province, it's a seat of government, the proconsul, all of these things, uh, uh, steeped in the occult, magic arts. In fact, later on you will see Paul's, after this, Paul's encounter with Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith, uh, you know, they're silversmiths. They make these shrines of silver. And Demetrius made shrines in honor of Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. 
And he got, this was his business. And the, the Bible says, and other tradesmen with him. When they saw the people burning the books, guess what they thinking? The mucha, the maicha, the kwacha is gone. Our business is just shut down by one man spending, talking and dialoguing in a lecture theater. Check the effect is happening on the city. Paul literally shut down the economy of the demonic in Ephesus. And this guy, Demetrius, the leader of all the workmen, he kicks up a fuss and he starts to accuse Paul. They, they, certain of Paul's associates are brought to, to bear. Paul himself wants to go there and defend himself, but the other disciples said, it's safe, we want to keep you safe. Stay away from this, this gathering. And that whole gathering came to, to naught. Paul effectively um, stopped the siphoning away of finances into the realm of the demonic. Right? And I think he transferred it to the kingdom. We don't know much uh, what else happened here at Ephesus financially. But also the lesson is when you touch the enemy's resources, expect warfare. Right? Expect warfare. Right? Now, you know, what, you know what I think? Listen carefully. I think the beginning of the eldership of Ephesus was being formed here in the lecture theater for two years. Not everybody could make these meetings. Not so, people are working, etc. So I think this was the part of the eldership was, was starting to meet here. By the way, in Acts 20, when Paul, after Ephesus, Paul left Ephesus after this uprising, Demetrius, etc. The disciples felt safer for him to go away. He left for some time. And then on, en route coming back to the place, he didn't go to Ephesus. Because the Bible says he was en route and the Bible says he sailed to Malit, Miletus. He wanted to go to Jerusalem to make it in time for the, the, the Feast of Pentecost. He wanted to be there. But while at Miletus, the Bible says he sent for the Ephesian elders. So leadership had already evolved. And he sent for them. And Paul's words to them were, listen carefully. He said, listen guys, you know. My, how I behaved when I was with you. And he said three years. He said, for the pace of three years, he says, every day, he says, three years, every day, from house to house, and in the synagogues, I have not kept back anything from you, but I declared unto you the whole or the full purpose of God. Everyone say, from house to house. So while, listen carefully, um, for two years at the school of Tyrannus, Paul says, my whole stay there was three years. And in that time period, I went from house to house and publicly, he says, teaching you. House to house was not from physical domestic dwelling to physical domestic dwelling. House is oikos there, which literally means from one family in a jurisdiction to another family. Remember, when, whenever I say the church at Ephesus... There wasn't one massive building in the city where the church gathered. Right? Letters to the churches were letters to multiple family units in a city. So Paul had this idea of, I think while he was there, he went from church to church in Ephesus. From one family headed by an elder. So he calls for all of these leaders. And he addresses them in Acts, in Acts 20. So literally Paul emptied himself into Ephesus. I think if any, in any place he uploaded his grace, it was at Ephesus. Oh, by the way, who does he put you in charge ultimately? Timothy, one of his best sons. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, 
um, I see I've left you at Ephesus, that you might put in order the things and teach some not to teach strange doctrines. Right? So we have this passion about this, this place. There's it recorded in Acts 20. Let's just read it. Okay, we may not finish all of this. Sailing from there, verse 15, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we crossed over to Samoas. And the following day we came to Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would be not have to spend time in Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink, I like what Paul says, I did not keep back, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from, uh, publicly in the school of Tyrannus, and then also from church to church, from family to family, from household of faith to household of faith, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what things will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies in every city that bonds and afflictions await me. Paul is saying, wherever I go, trouble waits, waits there for me. So, no, but I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit testifying to me that wherever city I go, there's trouble waiting. Bonds and sufferings are waiting for you. But, I like what he says. Everyone say, but. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, that I might finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know, among, I know that of you... Now, please, who is he speaking to here? The leadership of the, the churches in the city at Ephesus, all the elders... Spiritual fathers over various families. He says to them, um, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. He was saying, chaps, it's the last time. Take a good look. You will not see me again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your God, Ephesian elders. Be on your God, spiritual fathers over the churches of Ephesus. Watch. I think it's a subtle, subtle innuendo. Don't lose your first love, Paul is saying. Don't lose your first love. Be on your God. Watch for yourselves and for the flock. Two things leaders must watch for. Yourself. Watch yourself. And watch your, your flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Be on, be on the alert. And remember that, I like what he says. Now, Amplified Bible says, 10, 2, 3. Yeah, he says, even in the night, 
night and day. For a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you all with tears. Think of Paul's passion. Can you see the apostle passionately with tears in his eyes teaching and imploring the, the Ephesian elders? Okay. Now Paul uses other words here, apart from reasoning and persuading. He uses words like, I declared, which is anagela, which means to announce. He uses words like testify, which basically means to give a personal testimony. The word had become so his, he became a witness, a test he gave evidence of, of what he was preaching. And then to teach literally means didasco, we get the word didactic, to impart instruction. So Paul, if I analyze his methodology at Ephesus, Paul reasoned, Paul persuaded, Paul declared, Paul testified, and Paul taught. All year at, he used a wide variety of instructive methodologies to get his to get his his points across. Point four. Ephesus, a place where nations converge to hear the word of God. Now we get this impression, and this is a, a, a we're surmising this, that nations converge here because the Bible says everyone in Asia heard the, the word of the Lord. Point five on page eleven as we conclude. Ephesus is a place where human ideology and inaccurate religious systems opposed to God's will is destroyed because of God's, because of God's word. And I explained to you how that these um, 50,000 pieces worth of magical books were burnt. Right? A false system. Human ideology opposed to the word of the Lord is destroyed at this place where the word of God was given primacy and priority. I want to encourage you, please don't, you know, what, what could happen is when you fail to see the anticipated results, you, you tend to get discouraged. I want to encourage you, don't give up your devotion to the Word. God is building. Paul took three years, or two years in the school of Thessalonians, and things started to just, what was he doing? Now, I explained all this in the paragraph. Let me put it in my own words. What was Paul doing systematically day by day? from 10 to 3, and from night, and from house to house. Every time this guy opened his mouth, right? And how does Jesus stand in the book of Revelation of Ephesus? Like his mouth at the sound of many waters with a two-edged sword. Sharp, acid. It is, every time Paul speaks, the acid in the word is disintegrating every erroneous system at Ephesus, right? So that is why I will not be discouraged by coming every Friday. Why? You are not the audience per se. There's something happening beyond what we see in the natural. Right? Keep your eyes open to the spiritual, spiritual reality. Also, our reach is not these four walls. Our reach now is the globe. Right? Now, um, to change the, to erode the ruling principality jurisdictionally in a geographical area. Every geographical area has got a ruling prince over it. You know this from the book of Daniel, the prince of Persia, which stood me, right? Now, principalities are given force and impetus in that geography or that region simply because of the subscription to principles of people in that area. A principality rules by principles. You can erode the power of the principality by altering the principles by which the people live. What does Paul do every time he opens his mouth? 
He's releasing principles from the kingdom. Principles of the word of the Lord. People hear the principles of the God's way. They opt to work and to live by God's principles. So Diana of the Ephesians is a power, this goddess, this evil deity, a power, or the other name is also Artemis, is being eroded day by day. And ultimately the evidence is people burn the medium, the books. What do books do? Books perpetuate behavior from one generation to the next. The thing that perpetuates the worship of Diana is burnt. Right? And what did it take? Consistent devotion to reasoning, persuading, testifying, declaring, teaching. The word of the Lord on a very, very consistent basis. Right? Now the conclusion. This last verse in Acts 19 verse 32 is one of Paul's last parting words to the Ephesian elders. He says to them, you will not see my face again. And he says these words to them. Now I commend you to God. And what do I commend you to? I commend you to the word. Tell you never be commended to the word. Paratitamai, commend, means to place in close proximity towards. To position yourself in closeness to. This word commend is about proximity, to position yourself close to something. Paul says, I commend you, Ephesian elders. You that are going to watch over the flock of the houses in Ephesus. I commend you to the word of his grace. Because what you need is grace. And grace comes through the word of God. Of the many things Paul could say to these Ephesian elders, he realizes, elders, we got all the results in Ephesus because of our devotion to the word. Now I'm going, I will not be here. I must be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. In fact, I know I'm going to die probably. Um, Paul's final obsessive objection, when you study his travels, he was intent on arriving at one destination. It was Rome. Right? He's like, got to get to that place, the seat of government for this Roman uh, uh, government. Right? There he died ultimately. Right? And so he's in route, he's got that objective because the Holy Spirit had witness in his spirit that he was hard-pressed to get there. Right? So he says to the Ephesian elders, he knows he's going to die, you'll not see my face again. What can I leave you in my absence? What, can I, what, what is the principle I'm going to commend you towards? He said, I want you to be in close proximity. I commend you to the word of his grace. Let me just say this, even if you never see my face again personally, the one thing that will keep you solid is the word. The word of his, the word of his grace. And what did Paul say? Two things. It's able to do two things. It's able to build you up, Ephesian elders. Right? Build oikodomia, strong edifice, mighty, impenetrable fortress. Make you strong. And then give you access to your inheritance in the Lord. The word of his grace. When you neglect the word, you neglect being built up and you neglect accessing your inheritance. Last page, quickly. Last page. I'll put a couple of verses down just to encourage you. Those two verses in Acts 19. Please just make one correction here. I'll just see it now. The sentence that reads, the verses which describes the power of a word-focused church, as Ephesus was, is Acts 19.20 and Acts 19.10, not 19. Acts 19.10. And then also add that's, at 1910b, at the one next to the 
So the last characteristic phrase of all that happened at Ephesus is this. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Um, is your house a word house? Is the word growing mightily and prevailing in your house? Right? Verse 1910b, it says, all in Asia heard the word. All in Asia heard the word. Consider these phrases also in the book of Acts. Listen carefully. Acts 6-7, look at next week. The word of God kept on spreading. Acts 12-24. The word of God continued to grow and multiplied. Acts 5.42, every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching. Acts 13 verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word in the Jews, in, this, in the synagogue of the Jews. Acts 18 verse 5, I love this verse, I just discovered this verse. I always knew it existed, but its impact hit me. Concerning Paul, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began to devote himself completely to the word. Right? A complete obsession and devotion to the word. The thing that is going to change our city is a growing word and a prevailing word. Growing mightily and prevailing. Um, that is why I want to encourage you. Somehow we need to return. Now, ask your neighbor, or tell him this. Remember the place from which you have fallen. Ask your neighbor this. Have you left your first love? Have you left? If so, repent. Paul, uh, the, the book of Acts says, repent and return from the place you left and elevate to the place from which you have fallen. How do you do that? The clue is given. Return and do the first deeds. For some strange reason, we don't know what happened. But from Acts 20 to Revelation 2, huge gap. This church, which is this apostolic church that had this view of God's purposes for all the global church and the whole of the then known region, somehow waned in their commitment to Paul's last charge to the Ephesian elders. I commend you to the word. And so John writes to them. Oh, by the way, John the Apostle lived here in Ephesus. Ephesus, John lived in Ephesus. So it was a strategic place. Right? Now John writes to the church says, remember the place from which you have fallen. Remember your first love. Your first love is your devotion to the word of the Lord. Amen.